Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Her American Story, a podcast where first and second generation American women share their stories about growing up in the United States. I'm your host, Jazz Bean. To learn more about my guests, visit HerAmericanStory.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at HerAMStory. Feedback? Would you like to be on the show? Send me an email, HerAmericanStory at gmail.com. I've got another great story for you today, so let's get started. Hi, and welcome to Her American Story. Today we have Dr. Maddie Sinha with us. Uh, We're going to start off by having her tell us a little bit about herself. Okay. Hi, my name's Maddie Sinha. I'm an author. My debut novel is called The White Coat Diaries, and it was pitched as a cross between Grey's Anatomy and Scrubs, but with an Indian American main character. And it'll be out from Berkeley and Penguin Random House Publishing on September 15th. I'm also a doctor and a mom to two very young, rambunctious kids. That's awesome. Now, where did you grow up? So I was I was born in suburban New Jersey in um, a relatively diverse town, I think, compared to other parts of the country. My parents immigrated to the U.S. in the mid-1970s. And then in 1985, when I was seven, they moved us back to India, back to the small town in Gujarat where my dad grew up. So I had the really unique experience of being an immigrant in the country my parents emigrated from. What was it like coming back to the United States after that experience? You know, India was really interesting. It gave me the chance at a young age to see the world from a different perspective. So I think I brought, you know, that experience back with me. And my life was definitely richer for that experience. Now, did that make you more proficient in the language? It did. I actually learned how to speak and write Gujarati while I lived there. I went to school there, although I went to school at an English-speaking school, but, you know, my friends spoke the native language, and so I did learn to speak it a lot better, and I don't think I retained very much of that, but for a few years, I was pretty good. Okay, so tell me, how um, old were your parents when they came to the United States the first time? So my dad came for college, um, for, like, for graduate school in, like, the late 1960s, and then went back home and married my mom. And I want to say that they were probably in their, like, early 20s. And where did they move to? Yeah, so, um, like, central New Jersey and, like, a like a suburb where there were a lot of other Indian immigrants. Oh, that must have been a nice transition. So you're away from home, but you still have lots of people that you can kind of connect with and make a kind of a community with. Yeah, absolutely. That was a big part of my growing up. And then how old were you when you went back to India? So I was seven when we moved to India, and we only stayed for a year. And okay. then we moved, we moved back. And then did you move back to New Jersey? We did. Like a, a different town, but like close enough that we still had the same Indian community, basically. Now, did you feel any difference kind of having been immersed in the culture there and then coming back to the United States? We or did you kind of just blend back in? <laughs> yeah. You know what was interesting about India was that I got to experience what it was is like to be a minority in two totally different ways. So in the U.S., I was a minority because I was Indian. And then in India, I 
was a minority because I was American. So I had an American accent and I wore American clothes. I remember the first week I lived in India, I wore shorts into town and caused some sort of scandal because back then girls didn't wear Western clothes. So it was kind of like a, like a, a big faux pas. I had to learn how to adapt. And I think we're always doing that as the second generation. We're always between two worlds. And I write about this in my book. The main character, Nora, has a sister-in-law who looks down on her for not being Indian enough. And that concept of being too Indian or not Indian enough, I think is, is interesting. Definitely. Now you moved back to New Jersey. And mm-hmm. so you were in a large South Asian American community. And so lots of South Asian friends and get togethers and things like that. And now how long did you stay in New Jersey before you moved? So we moved a few times like in that area. And then when I was 15, we moved to Northeastern Pennsylvania. So from a pretty diverse neighborhood into a part of Pennsylvania that was not very diverse at all. So my high school class in New Jersey was about 20% people of color. And my high school class in Pennsylvania, there were like four other people of color in my class. And it was like a class of 450 or something like that. Wow. And so did you tend to gravitate towards people that were different? I know sometimes when you're the one that's kind of different, you know, you have a tendency to gravitate towards others that are different. Or did you tend to make more friends that were, you know, like Caucasian American? How how did that work out for you? There just weren't a lot of other Indian people. So I just had to kind of be friends with whoever was around, you know, like in the different clubs or activities that I was was involved in. And I was a pretty nerdy high school kid. So I think I gravitated towards the other nerds. One of the interesting things about being in school there was it was probably my first experience with really like overt racism. It wasn't like I hadn't ever come up against racism in my life, but being a minority in a school that was that big and being such like a small percentage, you know, um, of kids being people of color. There was definitely some racism from other students and even sometimes from teachers. Like I look back now and I recognize the microaggression that I, I don't think I had that word back then. I certainly didn't have that word back then. But I look back now and realize what it was. But, you know, I had to learn to adapt and get along. And I'll tell you a funny story. When I was in 10th grade, there was this kid that sat across from me in study hall who just would mess with me, like just would say ignorant things, just to, I think just to get a reaction out of me. And he would say things like, do your parents own a Dunkin' Donuts? Or do you work at 7-Eleven? Just, you know, ignorant stuff like that. So I convinced him that I was an Indian princess and he totally bought it. Like I, so what I did was I did, I'd read this about this magic trick. I'd learned this magic trick from like Highlights Magazine, which like made it look like I could read his mind. And it's this really simple, magic trick and it's kind of stupid when you see how it how it's actually done but I just did it like really convincingly and I've always been like a good storyteller so like I could tell a convincing story so I told him that I was like Indian royalty and I did this magic trick and I was like I have mind reading powers and he totally bought it and then it became this rumor that like lived for months where like everyone in school thought I was like a mystical Indian princess and like months later people were still coming up to me and being like, I heard you have magical powers. And I was like, yes, yes, I do. It's just an Indian thing. And like, it to me was hilarious. And like the rumor just like went on for like months and months and it was really entertaining to me. So figure, you know, if you're going to be ignorant, I'm going to use it against you and just entertain myself. 
<laughs> that's pretty hilarious. <laughs> and especially being like 10th graders that they were like, oh my gosh, she's got magical <laughs> powers. I totally bought it. Yeah. It's like, it's amazing. Like what you'll believe if you just haven't come into contact with a lot of other Indian people. Like, I guess, I don't know. I guess it seemed believable. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> so then after high school, did you stay in that area or did you move away from home? How did that work out? So I stayed relatively close to home. I went to college outside of Philadelphia and I was in one of those combined BSMD programs where you only spend like two to three years in college and then just proceed to medical school. So I knew I was going to medical school when I graduated high school and I had like a relatively like short college career and then went to medical school in Philadelphia. Now, what made you decide to be a doctor? Was it just kind of the pressure from family or... That is such a good question. You know, I feel like it started out as, I don't know if I'd call it a pressure as much as it was just like encouraged. And I think, you know, for my parents being immigrants, I think security is so important. So to them, you know, when they looked around in their community, it seemed like people who were doctors were secure. And I think that's what they really wanted for me. But I also gravitated towards it. I always just liked science. I liked the idea of going to, you know, an environment every day that would be different, that would be challenging. And yeah, I mean, I I think, oh, as time went on, I just fell in love with it for what it was. And now you have siblings, right? I do. I have an older brother. And so did he pursue medicine as well? He didn't. He went the other (laughs) acceptable path. He's an engineer. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you can either be an engineer (laughs) or a doctor. So exactly. We can say that because we're (laughs) South Asian. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay. And so you went through college, medical school, kind of in a rush. (laughs) How how did that go for you? How was the socializing and kind of, I guess, meeting people from other cultures and, you know. I feel like in med school, I really had my head down and I was hyper-focused. I was a lot younger because I did that, that sort of accelerated program. I was a lot younger than a lot of my classmates. But once I hit residency, I I loved it. And which is weird to say about residency because it's not like I loved all of it and it's not like it was easy, but I just, I think I got there and I felt like this is what I've been working towards. You know, like this actually is like, was like the opportunity to actually practice medicine, which I've been working for for so long. And residency is just like such an intense time. And you know this too, it's, you know, the number of things that you experience during residency in like a short period of time, it's like, I don't know that you have that experience ever again in your life. It's so unique. And, you know, for somebody who likes telling stories like myself, like there is no better place to be than in a hospital at night by yourself because things are going to happen. You know, every night on call was like a different crazy collection of stories. And I actually like literally kept a notebook during my residency where I would write down all of the very many crazy things that either happened to me or happened people that I knew, uh, you know, colleagues in residency. And that formed the foundation of, of my book. Yeah. Residency is definitely an experience (laughs) (laughs) to say the least. Um, the, I guess, a collection of strange experiences, elating experiences and things you never expect are ever going to happen to you. Like stuff that you, like, you can't make that stuff up, right? Like you, you really can't. And yeah. Now tell me, how did you meet your husband? So he was a med student when I was an intern. 
intern. So, the, so my first year, you know, the first year out of medical school after you graduate with your degree is your internship, which everybody does. And the med students sort of come for a couple of months and, you know, they spend time with you on the different rotations and you're supposed to supervise them and teach them things. So he was assigned to my service when I was an intern. And I remember seeing him around and thinking like, I'm far too important and busy to bother with this medical student. And then one day he asked me out over a patient's gangrenous foot. And like three years later, we got married. That's so romantic. How does that come up? How how do you (laughs) ask somebody out over a gangrenous foot? How did that? so awkward. And he like looks back now and he's like, I can't believe I actually did. I think he actually asked for my digits. It wasn't my phone number. He actually used the word like mortifying to me now. And like the fact that I didn't like turn and run, like just says something about what a nice person he is. He just seemed like a really nice guy. <laughs> that is and like hilarious. as we were like examining this gangrenous foot, he was like, and also maybe you'd want to give me your digits. And I was like, um, sure. <laughs> like this is the weirdest way to be asked out, but okay. <laughs> And that speaks to how strange medicine is, that it can be considered normal to ask somebody out over a gangrenous foot. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So then how did you start writing? Because I mean, as a doctor, you're fairly busy, especially as a student. So when did you start to write? I guess, when did you start to write this book that's coming out? Yeah. So I've always been a writer and I always just kind of worked it into the free time that I had. Like for me, it's, it's fun and there's almost nothing I'd rather be doing. So, you know, for me, like to get home from a day of work and then to spend a couple of hours writing was just really normal. But after I graduated from residency, I was, it was probably like a few years later, I was pregnant with my first child and just like sitting around the house in the wintertime. And I was like, you know, I've had this idea for a long time. Like ever since I, you know, had finished residency, I'd had that notebook full of stories. And I was like, I really want to turn this into something. So I just started, you know, with like a first paragraph. And then when I had time would just add to it. And I didn't really get serious about it until probably like a couple of years later, I was like, I'm really going to try to turn this into a novel. And I'd never written a novel before. I'd written like movies and I'd written short stories. This was the first sort of crack I was taking at novel writing. And it was just so enjoyable. I just, you know, I wake up early and stay up late to to do it because I just loved it so much, you know, not knowing if it was ever going to find a publisher. But yeah, so that just, you know, because I loved it so much, it, it didn't feel like work. That is awesome. Now, had you published anything before? No, no. I I think I published like a poem in like a newsletter when I was 16 or something. And that's that's really it. That is so cool. And so how did your family feel about your writing and, and this actually coming to fruitation and becoming a book? My mom is a reader and she was really supportive of the idea. But yeah, I think that, you know, my family really wasn't familiar with like the path to becoming a published author. And honestly, neither was I. I mean, I just kind of was working on this book for myself and had to kind of learn it as I went along, you know, sort of like once the book was was finished, I had to figure out on my own how to get an agent. I didn't even know what that was, how to, you know, then how to sort of like, you know, the agent is the one that pitches your book to publishing companies. Like all that was stuff I sort of figured out on my own. So I think my family was supportive, but they were kind of like, we don't really know anyone who's done this. So we're not really sure how that's going to work out for you, but good luck type of thing. Now, how did you work writing into your schedule as a doctor? So 
when I got really serious about it, I would wake up early and try to write for a couple hours before I went to work. And then a lot of times I would like either get to work early and like write in my car in the parking lot, or if I got home from work early. So the last, let me see, I graduated from residency in like 06. And I've had an outpatient job ever since then. So pretty regular hours. So if I had to be home at five o'clock to let the babysitter go, but I happened to get home at like 4.30, I always had my computer with me. So I would just like pull over into a parking lot and just like really quick write for a half an hour. And, you know, like five minutes here and 10 minutes there. And it just kind of, it's amazing how that adds up. But it did take me a really long time to finish this book. I mean, from the time that I typed the first sentence to the time that it was ready to go out to publishers was a good eight years. That's so inspiring oh, <laughs> to, <thank see>. <laughs> to see somebody who has a full-time job with children being able to create something on the side is just always so inspiring to me. <laughs> I, think it's, I, you know, I think it's like, it's probably like you with the podcast. I think it's like when you really love something and you feel passionately about it, you find the time to work it in, you know? And I think we all have more time than we think we do. It's just about, you know, like how you sort of finding the time and then how you're going to spend it. So I don't do a lot of like, I don't think I've watched TV. I can't remember the last time I've actually sat down and watched an entire TV show. I just, you know, I think you have to, there are some things that you just, I just had to let go, things like that. But for me, it's worth it. So I think, you know, if you really love something, you'll make the time for it. Now you have two daughters. How old are they? They are nine and almost five. And so how are you passing on your culture and language and stuff to them? I always find this to be interesting because it seems challenging to me. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's like the hard that's the hardest question. I I struggle with that. So I still live in New Jersey, not in the same part of New Jersey that, you know, that I did when I grew up, but I'm lucky in that I live in a diverse state and a lot of our neighbors are Indian. I think that helps tremendously. There is like an organized like Hindu school that's like a couple of towns over that my kids have gone to. I just feel like there are a lot of resources in the community and being around a community of other Indian people just takes the pressure off me. It's not like I have to constantly be sort of asking myself, what am I imparting to them? I think they get it from either this, you know, the Hindu school or just like going to school with other people who are Indian. Yeah. So kind of like a community effort. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, how do you think growing up for them is different than it was for you? I mean, you kind of mentioned the microaggressions and things like that. Do you mm-hmm. think they experienced anything similar or because of where they are and, and, you know, the type of community they're in that they have it a little bit easier? I think that the community that we're in really helps a lot. You know, there's strength in numbers and because, you know, they see a lot of other kids who look like them and, you know, also um, Indian kids who are first generation, you know, who, whose parents have just, or sec, I guess second generation whose parents have just immigrated and they're growing up the way I grew up, right? Like where their parents were immigrants. Like I think my kids see that and like, you know, it makes them feel not out of place. So I do think it's very different from the way I grew up because I didn't have as many Indian kids in school as my kids, as my kids do. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And they have more representation, I think, in general, right? In the media, they have Mindy Kaling. I feel like we yeah. didn't really have Mindy. We kind of no, have Mindy we now, needed, but... <laughs> we needed Mindy. Yes, I needed Mindy. 
in person. Yeah, you're you're totally right about that. There is more representation, and there are some you know some great kids and middle grade books with South Asian main characters, and I definitely seek those out for my kids. And I am so grateful that there are people out there writing stories like that because I see my my especially my older daughter who is an independent reader. I see her gravitate towards books with South Asian girls as the main characters, and I know that that really means something to her. And we also talk about racism and microaggression in our house more than we ever did in my house growing up. Because, and again, I don't think we had the words to really talk about it when I was young. You know, when something that was like, that would now be considered a microaggression happens, I remember my parents being like, we look different and things like that will happen. And you just kind of have to deal with it and move on. But it never had a name. And I never had the sense of like how outrageously unfair it was. I talked to my girls, and especially my, my older daughter, about that and about, you know, recognizing when something is a microaggression and how she should react to that. You know, I hope that that helps her grow up a lot more confident than I grew up. I almost feel like we weren't allowed to have those feelings. Like we were meant to kind of fit in and we were always trying to blend in. And so for me, because I, I grew up in a predominantly Caucasian area as a as a young person and i just felt like i didn't want to stand out so even if i knew something wasn't right i didn't feel like i could or should say anything about it and i think that's changed now right we're allowed to say stuff and we're allowed to i feel like we weren't allowed to and now we are because it's more it's discussed more openly i think that's absolutely true i and i remember being told to my dad's like favorite thing to say would be um keep a low profile so like don't make yourself the center of attention. Don't call attention to yourself. You know, no matter what the situation was, like the messaging you were given was to just sort of shrink down and make yourself smaller. And I think it is very different now. I think now that we recognize the unfairness of it and we're allowed to speak about it, you know, we can encourage our kids to be as big and as loud and take up as much space as they want to, which is like amazing, you know, for South Asian women, this is like I feel like an important time in history where we can sort of like reclaim our voice. Definitely. Now, what was the inspiration behind your book? I know partly it seems like maybe residency and being a doctor, partly being a South Asian American woman. What made you really feel like you should write this book? Yeah. So I had read The House of God, which is like the cult classic that all medical students read, right? When I was a medical student. And it's about, for those who haven't read The House of God, Um, It's about an intern in a hospital in New York and the sort of all of the really emotional experiences that happen over the course of a year. And I felt like when I was going through my residency, I was going through like a very similar journey to the character in that book, only mine was so different because I was female and South Asian. And I knew I wanted to do something with the experiences that I'd had, especially during my intern year, which was just like... So, so like the number of crazy things that happened that year and so many of them were like disturbing. And I was like, all of this has to mean something, you know, in my life, like having gone through that, like it has to mean something more than just, it was like a year of my life. So to me, like to make it meaningful, I was going to write about it. So that's where I started. And I started with the idea that, you know, it'd be nice to have a book like the house of God, but for women and for, especially for South Asian women, there are a lot of us in medicine. It'd be nice for us to have a book that kind of reflects our experiences. And so that's kind of where I started and it kind of grew from there. 
That's funny. That's exactly what I was thinking about when I read the book. I was thinking, finally, we have a book that's not the house of God (laughs) that talks about (laughs) what it's like to be a doctor, just because there's so many kind of outdated messages in that book. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was like, yeah, it was like a groundbreaking (laughs) book for its time. But there's so many more women and so many more people of color in medicine. And, you know, we deserve to be represented, too. Definitely. And I think this book will resonate beyond that even. I think the shared experience of being an intern, I think a lot of people will really enjoy reading it. And then there's that added bonus of having the representation of a South Asian, you know, American woman. But I I absolutely enjoyed reading it. I'm so excited for it to come out because I think it's going to be very well received. Um, Now tell us, when is it going to be out? So it, it, it will be out on September 15th. It can be pre-ordered or ordered wherever you get your books. Awesome. And then you are on social media. So let us know where can you be followed? I am at Maddie Sinha on both Twitter and Instagram and MaddieSinha.com. Wonderful. I'm so excited for this book to come out. And I almost want to do like a follow-up interview after we kind of see how people love it because it's going to be amazing. (laughs) Thank you so much for saying that. I really, I hope that people, you know, read it and enjoy it and connect with it. And absolutely. I would, I would come back in a second for a follow-up interview. Now, one last question. What advice do you have for South Asian American women who want to pursue writing? So this is a great question. So I have so much advice. (laughs) I think there is a real lack of diversity in publishing, like we talked about, you know, in in all media, TV, like you said, movies, et cetera. So if you are Indian American and a writer, we need your stories. So please keep writing them. My book is unusual. It's, you know, it's medical fiction, which is not a thriller, which is kind of weird. And it's about, you know, the main character is a South Asian woman in her 20s, which is also just in and of itself. You don't see that a ton. But to put the two things together is really unusual. It's not a romantic comedy. It's not about arranged marriage. It's not about the themes that you usually read about in South Asian literature. And I love those books. It's just not what mine is. So it was taking a bit of a risk to try to write a book that I had never seen before on any shelf. And there's that saying, you can't be what you can't see. And I think that often as people of color, we don't have that luxury. There might not be a role model that you can look to and say, well, there's someone that looks like me and is writing the type of stories I want to write or making the kind of movies or art that I want to make. And that can be discouraging. And it makes it hard to imagine yourself in that place. And it takes courage to say, you know what, fine, I'm going to be the first person that does whatever that is. And I'm going to be somebody else's role model. So I would say, please keep writing your stories. And just because you don't see a book like yours on a shelf doesn't mean that there isn't a place for you. That is great advice for uh, South Asian American writers and I guess any any writer, really. That's, That's excellent advice. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and telling me about your story and your actual book, (laughs) the other story. (laughs) Thank you very much. I've had a great time talking with you today. Thank you, Jasmine. It's been a thrill. I appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. Join me next time for another exciting episode. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at HerAMStory. I love feedback. Send me an email at HerAmericanStory at gmail.com. Music, courtesy of my husband, Justin Rensing. Hey 
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.